So happy to see all of you this morning. Hey, Jason, snuck in. Good to see you. I, I saw a few new faces, so I just want to bring us up to speed. And Josh said, and he prayed that God would bless the next 30 minutes. I hope that, that he'd be gracious enough to give me at least 40. Um, because I need all of his blessing and I need all of that time uh, for this large section in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've been working through the section where Jesus, who's talking about that he's coming, he's preaching and teaching about the kingdom of heaven to his disciples. And we know from uh, Matthew 7 that there are that there are non-believers in the audience, people who are not his disciples. They're eavesdropping, essentially. And what that means is that while they have, um, while they're exposed to this teaching, they're not able to carry out these commands like Jesus' disciples are. Nevertheless, Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to live in the kingdom. So for the disciples, this is instruction, and then for the non-believers, or the people who are not yet disciples of Christ, this is really, uh, it means to convict them, right? If you can't live up to these, uh, to these standards, which none of us can in our own power, then we need divine assistance. We need God's grace, his mercy, and his imputed righteousness and his imparted righteousness. So we've been working through this, and last week we uh, read Matthew 6, 19 through 24, where Jesus focused on our attitudes towards our material possessions, right, our stuff, the things that you and I like to hoard for selfish reasons. Now today, in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, another large section, Jesus focuses on our attitude towards the basic necessities of life, what we eat, what we drink, and what we wear. These are the basic necessities that every person in every age has needed to survive. Now, if you just notice, Matthew 6, 19, uh, 19 through 25, or excuse me, 24, it's primarily directed almost exclusively, though not exclusively, at the rich, right? Who has enough to store up wealth? Typically, wealthy people. Now, this section, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, is directed primarily at the poorer members of society. Now, again, it's not exclusive because even people who are wealthy can worry about what they eat, what they drink, and what they wear. Amen? Okay. Not awake yet. Hey, hey, man. <laughs> so, we understand that both being rich and being poor have their own challenges, right? If you're wealthy there's the temptation to put your trust and your security and really a false sense of security in that wealth, right? You don't have to worry about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, because you have money, you have resources stored away, and there's nothing wrong with that biblically. However, there is something wrong with putting your security in that instead of in God. Now, being poor has its own set of challenges as well because you, you um, start to distrust God's provision in your poverty, Right? You don't know where your next meal's coming from, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, etc. And you start to distrust God. That is also a challenge here in this passage. Now, what we see, I think, is, is something really beautiful in this passage. So I want to pray, and then I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Y'all bow with me. Father God, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and transform us by your spirit so that our lives might glorify and honor you in all that we say and do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. So in this passage, don't, don't miss this point. Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry, not even about the necessities because God is our master and father and he knows our present and future needs and he'll provide all of them for his children. Instead, Jesus' disciples are to eagerly seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now in verse 25, I'm gonna read the whole thing. Y'all read with me. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows what you need, or that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. So we see in this passage three times Jesus says, do not be anxious in verse 25, verse 31, and verse 34. And he gives us several reasons why Jesus' disciples should not be anxious. Right? We see right there at the top of verse 25, therefore, and we know that that therefore, anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you need to ask what for? What is it there for? We see the therefore, and it's there because it connects us to that previous section where Jesus says that the, that the Christian's only master is God. Right, look at Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So I know that we're sensitive to this master-servant or master-slave kind of language, right? Because we have these negative connotations associated with slavery or servitude. However, this is the context that Jesus is speaking in, so we need to understand the context of this master-slave or servant relationship. And in, the, in and around the first century, it wasn't like slavery in the antebellum South, Right? The, the, the master was responsible for providing the, the servants food, the drink, the clothing. They were like family. And really, the kind of servitude that Jesus is talking about, it was voluntary. So the, the slave or the servant wasn't captured and taken to this place that they were unfamiliar with, though that did happen right in the Roman Empire. But the kind of servant that Jesus is talking about here is a type of voluntary service where the, the servant depended on, trusted in entirely on their master for food, for drink, for clothing. If you had any worry about those things, that would express, express some sort of distrust in your master. It would express that you didn't trust in their ability to provide these things for you. So if God is our master, Jesus is saying this in verse 25, because God is our master, do not be anxious. Now, the command, do not be anxious, it includes here uh, the idea of stopping what is already being done, right? And we see several times in this passage that Jesus assumes or implies that his disciples were at least worried periodically, 
right? In verse 28, we see him ask, and why are you anxious about clothing? And then in verse 30, he describes them as you of little faith. So we know that the disciples worried about these things. And Taylor Stevens, were, I, I couldn't get into the whole anxiety deal. Taylor Stevens, our resident psychologist, sociologist, therapist, social worker, all things great, knows the brain, knows how it works and helps people. She does a lot. Um, but I asked her this week for some resources on anxiety because you type in statistics on anxiety in Google and you get a bunch of statistics. Now, I don't know if any of them are correct and what I didn't want to do is get up here and start saying a bunch of crazy numbers, but I didn't have the time. However, that word merimnao in the Greek, it means to be apprehensive, to have anxiety, to be anxious, to be unduly concerned, right? It's an anxiety that's so severe that it robs its victims of their sleep, it cripples their ability to decide and act, and it paralyzes their vi its victims with dread. Now, there are two basic necessities that Jesus just talks about right at the top, and it's what we eat and what we drink. And these don't reflect a concern about the quality or the variety on the menu, right? It's like the song, It's Raining Tacos. Does anybody know that song? Yeah, okay, we got a few, right? Here in America, if it rained tacos, we would complain because we like burritos, right? This isn't, this isn't the concern that Jesus is talking about here, right? There was, he was speaking to a, a largely agrarian society, right? They were mostly farmers. Their food and their resources, it depended largely on rainfall and crops and harvests and everything else. And these resources could be threatened by um, insects, by invading armies, by drought, by a few different things. So in any season, you could be without food if one of these things occurred. Now, the disciples' ancestors, we see it a few times in Scripture, but they suffered famine pretty often. Right, I'll, I'll read one, but he, here's what they did when they, like, this is how severe it was that they cannibalized their own children. Right, they were so hungry, they were so desperate that they started eating their kids. Lamentations 4.10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. So these memories of these dire circumstances that um, God's people faced in the Old Testament was in the, in the minds of Jesus' disciples or in his, uh, the minds of his audience as he taught this. And they knew this. They knew what it was like to be hungry. They knew what their, their ancestors had done in the past, and they were worried about that. And in this context, worrying about food seems pretty reasonable, right? But Jesus discourages his disciples to worry about what they will eat. He also discourages them to worry about what they will drink. And here, it's similar to the food, but in Palestine in the first century, a lot of the wells, they were hand dug, right? And they, when uh, there was drought or when there, they didn't get rain pretty often, these wells, they would dry up. They had wadis instead of rivers that provided water year round. And most of them didn't provide water year round. So any drought, anything, um, any sort of like lack of rainfall, lack of snowfall that came down the mountains and filled these wadis, they would dry them up completely. And most of these people, they understood. They knew what it was like to be dehydrated. They knew what it was like to be weak because they hadn't had anything to drink for a few days. 
This is in the minds of Jesus' disciples as, as he's telling them, do not be anxious about this. But don't miss the point. He's saying that because God is your master, do not be anxious for what you will eat or what you will drink. Then he says, don't worry about what you will wear also. And again, this isn't talking about keeping up with the latest fashion. Right? He's not talking about getting the... Uh, getting the new shoes versus the old sandals, you know, like he's not talking about that, but they were worried about what they would wear because again, they're, they're typically poorer members of the society. And if anything happened to their, uh, to their wardrobe and they didn't have money, especially if they didn't have any rainfall, they didn't have any harvest, then they couldn't buy new clothes. And typically, there was a distinction between the wealthier members of the society and the poorer members of the society. They had a completely different wardrobe, right? The wealthier members had a few different options. They were dyed with these really nice, rich purple um, dyes. And the poorer members, they typically wore wool because sheep were relatively common, actually the most common grazing animal in Palestine. So they would shear the sheep. They would thread it and do all the stuff, dye it, and it would be a really cheap dye. It would make their clothing either gray or brown. But even this, very cheap, very common clothing, if you were very poverty-stricken, was very hard to get. So Jesus asks a rhetorical question here at the end of verse 25. Look with me. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, the grammatical form of this question in the Greek, it implies an affirmative yes, right? And, and we don't need to be scholars in Greek to understand that, that Jesus is implying that yes, life is worth more than food and the body is worth more than clothing, right? Life, it's more important than food. And, and what we see is Jesus using a, a common form of rabbinic argument from greater to lesser, all right? So worrying about food, drink, and clothing, it doesn't enhance life. That's what we need to understand before we go forward, because what we see after this are illustrations that expand on this, all right? And since life is worth more than these things, the disciples should avoid worrying. Now let's look at these two illustrations, First, Jesus, he appeals to the birds of the air. Look at verse 26 with me. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? All right, so relatively simple, but although birds didn't, they didn't plant, they didn't sow, they didn't harvest crop, they didn't store them into barns, the, the answer for this reason, right, is because their heavenly Father or our heavenly Father feeds them. Now, the Old Testament it insisted that animals, they survived because God fed them by his hand. Look with me at Psalm 104, 27 and 28. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Now, what I found interesting in my study is Luke has a parallel account to the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 12. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. Different material, different, or sorry, same material, different time. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has the Sermon on the Plain. Same material, different occurrences. But in Luke's account of this story, or of this teaching, he includes the word raven. 
right? Look at the ravens. God feeds the ravens. And this is a pretty interesting distinction because ravens were considered unclean by the Mosaic law. They were the least worthy, according to Mosaic law, to be fed by God. Yet, Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Plain that God feeds even this undeserving to man, this undeserving bird. Are you not of much more value than they? So, what we need to understand is that, because I think this is relatively simple, right? Greater to lesser, we are worth more than the birds and God feeds them. So how much more will he feed his children? And this is an important distinction as well because Jesus doesn't say that God is the father of the birds, right? Look at your Bibles, look with me. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father, not theirs, your heavenly father feeds them. Now why is this an important distinction? Well, very simply because God is their creator, he's not their father. Now what does that mean? That not all people are the children of God. He created them, yes, Absolutely, he's, he created all people, all things, but he's only father to those who have been born again, have been adopted into the family of God, or in very simple um, way of explaining it, only those who have repented and believed in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin are children of God. And what that means is that all of those, who, all the children of God have a special claim on his provision, Right? very like practical illustration of this, I have a, a, a responsibility to feed my kids, to provide their food, their drink, their clothing, and their shelter. All the other parents in the room don't. Not to my kids, but to their kids. Because I'm their father. This is what Jesus is saying here. He feeds the birds, he will feed his children who have a special claim on his provision. And again, the, the grammatical form here in this rhetorical question, are you not of more value than they? It, it implies an affirmative answer, it implies an, an of course, of course we're of more value than they. So if God cherishes, cherishes his children more than the birds, then he'll faithfully and consistently meet the needs of his children. Now the, the question becomes, does that mean that you and I don't have to work? No. Now there's some people in the first century, right in the, in the church, New Testament church era, who affirm this view. This is why Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone, was, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I'll read that again. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And one commentator, he explained it this way, if Jesus' lighthearted illustration were pressed too literally, it might suggest that the disciples had no need to grow and harvest food. But the point is that God sees even, the birds, or sees even that the birds are fed and the disciples are more valuable to him than a bird. 
What is prohibited is worry, not work. Even the birds have to spend a lot of energy in hunting or searching for their food, but the point is the food is there to be found. So we need to work to earn a living. We need to work to provide, but we should never worry because God is not only our master, but he's our father, and as his children, we have a special claim on his provision. So if you are a child of God, you do not need to worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear. And then we see Jesus drive home this point in verse 27. He says this, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The general point is pretty clear. Worry accomplishes nothing. It serves no positive purpose if... uh, If we can't add months, weeks, days, or minutes to our lives by worrying, then why do we do it? I was watching a movie with um, Tom Hanks, and I don't know the other guy's names. I'm terrible with names and actors in movies, but it's called The Bridge of Spies. Has anybody seen it? All right, we got like two people. And one of them's my son who watched it with me yesterday. (laughs) Anyways, this Russian spy, he gets captured. Tom Hanks is a lawyer who has to defend him, you know, constitutional rights and stuff like that. And the guy, he, for being a spy, being charged with espionage, would receive the death penalty. And Tom Hanks is like, are you not worried? Like, you could die. Are you not worried? He's like, would it help? And that's the point. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, worry doesn't help. It doesn't do anything positive for you. So don't waste your time doing it. Now, in his... In his great sovereignty, God has determined the length of our lives, the the time of our birth, the time of our death. And I I know you may be a little skeptical, so I just want to read a few verses to you. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 2, 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Job 14.5, since his days are determined and the number of his months are, is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Psalm 104.29 and 30, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Understand that this is an encouragement to Jesus' disciples, right? That means that there's no accidental or premature death, right? Dehydration, starvation, that's not, like, it's not going to happen unless it's your time to die, right? So even in the famine, when uh, God's people, they cannibalize their children, what, what they should have been reminded of is that unless it's God's will for them to die, they won't die, They don't need to disobey him. They don't need to deny him or turn away from him in those trying times. What they need to do is stand fast in their confidence, in their faith, and in their trust in God and remain faithful to him. It may hurt. It may be uncomfortable. It's not going to be fun. But God, your master and your father will provide for you what you eat, what you drink, and what you wear. So before we go into... Verse 28, the point is is relatively simple. Worry can't do anything for us, so don't do it. 
It's pointless. So look at verse 28. This is the second illustration. And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Verse 29, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So he, he turns to another illustration to, to demonstrate God's providence or his providential care for his creation. And although Jesus had di- uh, directly prohibited anxiety in verse 25, he now questions the reasons for worry. He says, and why are you anxious about your clothing? Again, this is how we know that they, the, the disciples, they were at least worried periodically. But Jesus here, I think he wanted them to examine the underlying, the underlying causes of their anxiety, right? Like, why are you worried deep down? So he points to the, the wildflowers on the Palestinian countryside that covered the countryside to illustrate his point. And the point, again, it's simple. Large passage, but really simple point is that God is able to provide clothing for his people, right? These flowers, they don't, they don't labor, they don't spin thread, but yet they're beautifully clothed by God. Now, working uh, with wool, right? I know today we have a lot of machines and really we just kind of go to, well, if you're me, you're cheap with a capital C, so you just go to like Walmart or Target or something and get your clothes. But back then it was a really strenuous and tedious process, right? You'd have to one, have enough sheep in your flock to shear enough sheep to provide clothes for your family to make new clothes. You'd have to shear them, and then you'd have to um, straighten it. You'd have to thread it. You'd have to make it, and then you'd have to dye it, all so that it could be worn. Now, just imagine, though, they didn't have DiGiorno pizzas or microwaves or uh, pre-cooked meals or anything else, so you also had to hand-make your meals. Like, Think about all the things that you have to do in a day. Multiply that by all the conveniences we have that we save time by, and that's what they had to do. So now, if any of your clothes wear out, if any of your kids outgrew their clothes, you had to make them. You couldn't go down the road to buy them. Now, if you got behind at all, this could easily add stress and anxiety to an already busy schedule. But Jesus reminds his disciples that even Solomon wasn't arrayed like one of these. And and this largely became proverbial in Jesus' day, right? We like to imagine um, kings and um, royalty in these, like, nice, purple, like, rich, crowned with jewels and everything else. And that's not necessarily true. But it is true, at least mostly, of Solomon. There wasn't a king that, that matched his, his richness or his wealth or his power or his, um, I want to say beauty, but that sounds a little weird. Um, not physical beauty, but his ability to just look royal. Right? He had the, the, uh, the dyed purple, the crown, the jewels, and everything else because he was incredibly wealthy. So when, when Jesus refers to this, the Jews are the, the audience that he's talking to. They're imagining this really like decked out king, right? He has it all. He looks the part. He sounds like the part. And Jesus compares him to these wildflowers that cover the countryside. 
And the thing about these flowers is that they had such a, a rich and such a deep purple. They had a, a purple that was very difficult to match in their day. And it's, it says lilies, but they weren't really lilies. Not really the point, but you would look at these beautiful flowers, but in a day, they would lose their color. They would lose their, their beauty, right? They would wither quickly. And when they withered quickly, they were only good for one thing. And if we're just looking at this, we could probably guess what, right? It's alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. It was only good for fuel. Once it withered, these flowers were only good for fuel, right? So what you would see is in these like earthen ovens, they would have, you know, a a little fire going, maybe some coals. And then they would have like on the side, they would have these flowers that were withered and dried. And it didn't matter how dead the fire was. If there was just a little ember left, you could throw some of these flowers on there and it'd be like, has anybody ever thrown pine straw on a flower or on a fire? Yeah, it lights up, right? Or your Christmas tree lights up really quick. That's exactly what these flowers would do when you threw them on a dying fire. Now, I have a little bit of time left, but I think there, there's a little bit more to this, but I don't want to overdo it, right? Being thrown into the oven. Jesus uses this description to describe those who won't follow him later in the Sermon on the Mount, or excuse me, later in Matthew's Gospel, right? Matthew 13, 40. I'll just show you one example. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age, right? This is describing the destruction of non-believers, those who, who do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I think that this may be implied, but I think we could just keep it simple this morning and just understand that, that God will provide clothing for his children. They have a special, um, a special charge on his provision and he is able to provide. And something that I found that was pretty cool is that the Old Testament emphasized that God's gracious provision for the Israelites, um, he caused their garments to, to last over their 40-year journey in the wilderness. Look with me at Deuteronomy 8.4. It says, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Now, this was a miracle that was remembered like centuries and generations later, even into Nehemiah's day. Nehemiah 9.21, 40 years you, talking about God, sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing and they lacked nothing their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell so here's the thing if if God can make their clothing last 40 years is there anybody who's worn the same shirt size same pant size same everything for 40 years I would be really impressed he made it last that long their clothing and they're in the wilderness they're not in the air-conditioned sanctuary he made it last for 40 years. And this is something that, again, it was, it was provided to remind Jesus' disciples of the hope or of the, the uh, provision of God. So if he could make it last 40 years, how long do you think that he could make your clothing last if you trusted in it? Now, this may not be the, the name brand, the designer, the, you know, the stuff that we search Instagram and Facebook and um, this website and Black Friday shop for and, you know, go to the outlets for, but it's, it's going to be stuff that's going to protect 
and cover and shelter you um, and keep you alive. So he asks a rhetorical question in verse 30. At the end of verse 30, he says, um, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And he describes the disciples here, O you of little faith. So that rhetorical question, remember we talked about in verse 28, and why are you anxious about your clothing? Here he answers at the end of verse 30, he describes the, the disciples, O you of little faith. Why do they worry? Because they have little faith. And so we see the, the adjective, O you of little faith, or of little faith, it appears only five times in the New Testament. All five of these are in the New Testament Gospels, or excuse me, the Synoptic Gospels, describing Jesus' disciples. Now, four of these five occur in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 6.30, he describes the disciples' small faith, which we just read, it causes worry. Matthew 8.26, the disciples' small faith, it made them terrified in the face of the violent storm. You know, Jesus is walking on water. And then in Matthew 14.31, when, uh, in the second occurrence, when Jesus calls si uh, Simon Peter, I don't know why I was about to call, her, call him Peter Simon, but he calls Simon Peter out of the boat, and Simon Peter gets distracted by the winds and the waves. His little faith. And then in Matthew 16, 8, the disciples' small faith, it led them to believe that Jesus told them to beware of the laven because they had no bread. So every time that we see this adjective, it describes the disciples. You of little faith. It's one word in the Greek. It describes the disciples every time. Five times in the New Testament, four of those in Matthew, all of them describe the disciples. Now, if it described them, how much more does it describe us? Now, I know that may not be you. Y'all are perfect, but it describes me pretty often. But if we truly believed in God's power, worry would vanish. If we truly believed that he's our master, that he's our father, and that he provides for his children, worry would vanish. Yet, we like to make all of these excuses and rationalize our worries. Again, I say we, but it's probably just me, because y'all are perfect. I know, y'all probably don't like that, but I'm just messing with you. But this was, this was recognized by a bunch of other Jewish teachers. Look, it, it, in um, one rabbi, he said this, whoever has a mouthful yet remaining in his basket and says, what shall I eat tomorrow belongs to the number of those who have little faith. Like worry, just like today, it, it, it persisted all over the place. Now, behind of all of our smiles and, yeah, I'm doing great, I'm doing good, and everything else, like there's a bunch of worries, right? We, we just walk in, we're just going through the, the, going through the motions, but behind all of that, there's a heart full of worries. And if we would only open up to our brothers and sisters in Christ and tell them what our worries are, and better yet, if we just opened up to God, like 1 Peter says, cast all your cares and anxieties on him, because he's a father who cares, he's a father who provides, he's a father who loves. And he faithfully and consistently meets the needs of his children. So in verses really 31 through the remainder of the passage, we see these like concluding commands. So he reemphasizes in verse 31, he urges again his disciples not to worry about what they would eat, what they would drink, and what they would wear. He says, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And he concludes, or he um, equates it with, 
paganism, right? In verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. We talked about the Gentiles in, in prayer, right? The Gentiles are anybody who's not Jewish. And we, when we talked about the Gentile form of worship, they would worship the, their pagan deities and they would pray these really long prayers with all these adjectives. God, you're so good. God, you're so great. God of this, you, you're powerful and you could do that and do this and, because they needed to flatter their gods. They didn't think that their gods heard them or cared about them unless they flattered them enough. Right, so they would go on and on and on and on with all these adjectives and all of these really nice sounding words and compliments and flattery, whatever you want to call it. But they would just go on because they thought they would be heard for their many words. Does anybody remember that? So he equates it to paganism. But remember what Jesus said in the Lord prayer, or Lord's Prayer or Model Prayer in Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread. He's really brief, Right? He's really brief, like concise, to the point. Give us this day our daily bread. Because God knows what you need. Right? He's, he knows it. So you don't need to go on and on about it. That's what the pagans do. And, and better yet, they were like really busy about seeking all of this stuff. I want to read something for you. It's the letter of Aristides. I read it, um, I guess, a few months back now. But it dates from uh, 112 AD. So early 2nd century. But... He describes the, the Jews and the Gentiles in this way. The Gentiles are those who are concerned with meat and drink and clothes, their whole attitude to life being concentrated on these concerns. Does that describe anybody in this room if we're honest? I won't look up. Don't raise your hand. Such concerns are of no account among the people of our race, the Jews, but throughout, their whole, or throughout the whole of their lives, their main objective is concerned with the sovereignty of God. So here's this guy, he's describing these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. Their whole life is concerned with what they eat, what, what they drink, and what they wear. Now the Jews, he's describing them as people whose whole life is concerned with the sovereignty of God. And here's a reassuring thing. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So not only is God all powerful, right, to provide these things, but he's all knowing. He's omniscient, right? He knows that you need all of these things. So you cast your cares and anxieties on him, but you don't need to go on and on and on and on because he knows that you need them all. He's powerful enough to give you them all. And this is a point of confidence for the believer. So as we go on here, he says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. Instead of worrying about all these things that your father has the power to give you and knows that you need, instead of doing this, what the Gentiles do, eagerly seeking after all these things, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I... I don't know about you, but this is one of those passages that I, I always go back to. And it, it, but seek first. Seek first. It means continually seek. Continually and eagerly seek the kingdom of God. Right? And we know that's what we've been talking about. This whole Matthew 5 through 7, this whole Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God and being a kingdom citizen. So be seeking the kingdom of God continually and his righteousness continually. Now we need to understand that 
When we're talking here in this passage, there are two kinds of righteousness. Both come from God, but there's the imputed righteousness that you receive at the moment of salvation, right? Jesus' righteousness becomes your righteousness. God gives it to you. And every time he sees you, you're declared righteous in him. And then there's an imparted righteousness that Jesus told us in the Beatitudes that his disciples hunger and thirst for. This is the type of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. It's not the imputed, it's the imparted. And this is displayed in what his disciples do for, um, in the world, right? It's, it's not necessarily good works, but it's, it's living like a kingdom citizen. It's submitting to his will, his rule, and his reign in your life. Right, so what that means, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is not doing my own thing my own way. We talked about it very long ago, I don't know when, but Jesus isn't advocating here Burger King Christianity where you get to have it your way. Submit to his rule and reign. Seek his kingdom. Seek his rule constantly and eagerly in your life. And his righteousness imparted, carried out in your life, constantly and eagerly. And then he says this, and all these things will be added to you. So I think if you're like me, we like to get those things backwards, right? We seek all these things, and then the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But I think we clearly see the highest priority for the disciple should be God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then these things will be added to you. Now, the problem is, is that it's not name brand always. It's not the, the most maybe tasteful or the best quality or the most variety. But I just believe that God is powerful enough and faithful enough and he knows all things so that he'll give us exactly what we need. Can somebody say, hey man? There we go. <laughs> and then in verse 34, he says, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Now this whole passage, I think is pretty straightforward. But this right here, I don't know about you, but like, how does tomorrow worry about itself? But I, but I think that if we look into it, what Jesus is telling us, well, I know this just from study, what, what Jesus is telling us is that there's enough going on today. Worry about today, live in the present. Don't worry about tomorrow. He clearly says that. Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to have its own set of troubles but you have a father and a master who loves you and cares for you and knows all that you need. So worry about that tomorrow. Don't worry about it today. You're taking the strength out of today and trying to save it for tomorrow. And one thing that I found, the Talmud, it says this, care not for tomorrow's cares for you do not know what a day brings forth. Perhaps tomorrow you will not exist and then you will have cared for a world no longer yours. Tomorrow, it's, it's going to be anxious 
for itself. But when you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, there's a promise that God will provide all of these things for you. He knows that you need them. He's willing to provide them. So don't worry about it. Your heavenly father's got you. Yet, maybe like me, you worry a little bit too much about these things. And the invitation this morning is first, if you don't know the Lord in saving faith, you're not a child of God, you haven't turned from your sin and believed in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, he's calling you today in to the family of God. And what you get is you get a father who loves you and cares for you like we just got done talking about. This removes all worry, doubt, and anxiety when you trust completely on him. And if you are a child of God, then maybe we pray this morning that we put God first and that you learn to trust him and that you refuse to worry about these things. What would your day look like if you, if you refused, intentionally refused to worry about these things? What would your life look like if you refused to worry about these things and instead sought God first? If you're like me, it would look a little different, maybe a lot different. So that's the invitation this morning, and let's pray.